The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop writing that report to your project manager and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 129 with guest Joel Semeniuk, recorded live Friday, September 2nd, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASP.NET classes remotely, online at www.franklins.net. And by the Get Ready for SQL Server 2005 Roadshow. It's almost over, but there's still time to catch it in Detroit, Philly, Cincinnati, and Columbus, Ohio. Online at shrinkster.com slash 7u4. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActorReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's totally surrounded by Canadians, but he's not scared, Carl Franklin. Thank you, thank you, and thanks once again for joining us on .NET Rocks. It's another stellar episode. Uh, I'm sitting here in New London, Connecticut, in my happy little place, and uh, talking to my friend Richard Campbell out there in Vancouver, British Columbia. How are you, Richard? I'm doing very well. I'm... uh. I got my new air conditioner. Uh, did your old one not cut it or something? Well, I you know, my server closet's now been together for three and a half years, and this little air conditioner, and really, it's just a window box style air conditioner. Granted, it's 13,000 BTUs, but it's just a, an air conditioner, has been running 24 hours a day since then. So, I mean, I really wasn't going to begrudge the fact that it was starting to wear out after three years. But you know how it is with technology, when you're a good technical person, where everything always behaves when you threaten it? Yep. The, You're asking this for thing trouble. had been crapping out constantly, blowing the breaker, just stopped cooling every so often. I mean, it was failing. Trouble. The day I ordered the replacement air conditioner, it started working flawlessly and hasn't had a problem since. <laughs> Is this just for the server closet? Just for the server closet, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we don't cool the people around here, just the computers. Right. Maybe the dog. So now I've got this huge 100-pound box sitting in my hallway, doesn't have a home. Wow. Well, I got my air conditioner humming and cooling over here. No problem. It's not that hot here on the East Coast. We did have a heat wave uh, a while ago, but it seems to have cooled off a little bit. Uh, bad news in, in New Orleans, though, huh? 
We really you know, speaking of air conditioning. Yeah, we really hadn't talked about that on the last show, and everybody's talking about it. But the only thing I will say is that Richard and I have donated. We want you to donate. We have a link on our .NET Rocks page to the Red Cross. We'd uh, we'd like to ask you to really consider donating to the Red Cross. They're doing all they can uh, to help those people down there in uh, Louisiana recover from Hurricane Katrina. They need your help. They do. They need our, all of our help. So please be generous. And, uh, you know, that's that's where Louis Armstrong came from. Without New Orleans, we wouldn't have jazz in this country. We w- Maybe we would have jazz, but uh, it'd probably sound like uh, Devo or something. <laughs> so please give generously. Do you hear the Fats Domino story? What's the Fats Domino story? Fats Domino chose not to evacuate. He stayed in his house. And uh, nobody had heard from him and just recently came across the news that he uh, has been found and rescued by helicopter, so he's fine. I didn't know Fats Domino was still alive. Fats Domino is still alive and he was living in New Orleans. No kidding. Wow. <laughs> I, I'm just, I just need to soak that in for a minute. I, okay. I didn't thinking, even know he was alive. Blueberry Hill. Yeah, I know. I know that. But, and he was, he's a New Orleans guy, but I, you know, I had no idea. He was even still alive. You don't hear about Fats Domino on the uh, news. Anyway. Well, Richard, uh, this is a good time to plug our, our .NET Rocks road trip. If you haven't been paying attention lately, Richard and I are getting in an RV, and we're traveling with our sound guy, Jeff, and a few other people from Boston, down the eastern seaboard, down across uh, the south, Tennessee, Texas, out to uh, Phoenix, and then uh, to Los Angeles, and up to San Fran, uh, where we're going to, uh, you know, where the launch is going to be. We'll, we'll have a show from the launch, and then we're going to head over to Dev Connections in Las Vegas and uh, and do a show from there, too. So, man, we, we're not going to sleep. Uh, every step along the way, uh, hopefully every day, every weekday, we're going to have a show for you. We're going to be interviewing people in those particular locations that are doing cool things with .NET, and in particular, mobility. Because, you know, Roadshow is all about mobility, right? That's the part I'm excited about. Uh, Microsoft's committed to supplying us with all kinds of gadgets yeah. to test out while we're traveling. We're going to have... Like, there's going to be devices just falling out the window. We're going to have so many of them. We're going to give some away. <laughs> yep. We're going to give a device away in every city, some kind of device, whether it's a smartphone or a PDA phone or something, something programmable. And uh, we're also going to be outfitted with a lot of these things en route. So we'll, we'll be uh, blogging and you know using them to... To upload our files to the server, you know, for for .NET Rocks shows. I definitely want to build that where in the world are Carl and Richard right now page. (laughs) That'd be fun. (laughs) So people can start timing the number of minutes we're in front of barbecue shops. So I just want to read off the cities here. Uh, Boston, October 12th. Hartford, October 13th. New York, October 14th. Uh, New Jersey. We're going to be at a code camp October 15th. And we're thinking October 16th, which is a Sunday, we may uh, make a pit stop in Philadelphia and talk to some friends uh, near Philadelphia that do a, a, a podcast, like kind of like Mondays. And we're thinking of maybe crashing their party and uh, doing a Mondays there. And Okatsu uh, Generation. Okatsu Generation, right. Uh, October yeah. 17th, Philadelphia. October 18th, Baltimore. October 19th, Washington, D.C. October 20th will be in Raleigh. Uh, October 21st in Atlanta, the 22nd, which is a Saturday, will be in Orlando, 
and uh, having a party there too somewhere, maybe in back up in Atlanta on Sunday or Friday in Atlanta. We're, we'll be having a party there somewhere. October 24th, uh, Monday in Nashville, um, uh, 25th in Memphis, 26th in Dallas, 27th in Houston, 28th in Austin. That's a Friday. Jeffrey Palermo down there in Austin will be uh, hosting us, and I'm sure we'll have parties there. And then uh, we're thinking Mark Miller's going to join us and Karen's going to join us in Austin. We'll do a Mondays from down there. And then uh, Mark's going to travel with us in the RV from Austin to Phoenix to San Diego to Los Angeles. Uh, November 2nd, we'll be in Phoenix. That's a Wednesday. November 3rd in San Diego. November 4th in Los Angeles. That's a Friday. And then uh, we'll make our way up to San Francisco for the launch event, November 7th, which is a Monday. And uh, we're not going to have an event there ourselves because the launch is the event, right? Right. And then, uh, but we will be we will be publishing a .NET Rock show. We'll be talking to people up there, hopefully at the launch. And then we're going to go down for the tenth, a Thursday. We'll be at Dev Connections in Las Vegas. That's not free. So if you're attendee an attendee of Dev Connections, and uh, you're in Las Vegas, you can uh, join us there for that show. And there's and always, speaking of attendees, yeah, let's talk about PDC. Let's talk about PDC because it's coming up. We're doing we're, we're doing quite a few things there at PDC. We're going to be uh, first of all, we're there as regional directors, right? So we'll be at the regional director booth most of the time. Uh, we'll all we're also going to be doing a, a new show, a game show called the 64 Bit Question. Uh, it's a .NET Rocks quiz show, and we need contestants. We we said on the last. Uh, show that we're looking for contestants. If you're going to be at the PDC, you're going to be there Monday night, and we we don't know when it's going to be, but it's either going to be 6 p.m. or 9 p.m. or somewhere in between. But if you're going to be there on Monday night uh, and you want to come to our show, it's free. You can uh, be a contestant and compete and win a treasure trove of booty. we got some serious prizes coming together. More mobility gadgets. Yeah, mobility gadgets, uh, all sorts of fun things. So, you know, we don't obviously have a list to read right here, but we know we're going to have uh, at least a couple of mobile devices. We'll probably have some software titles from Microsoft. We'll have some licenses or something to give away. We're not sure exactly what the rest of it's going to entail. We'll definitely have some DNR swag. Uh, so if you're interested, in, it's going to be you know, a quiz show. You, if you, you know, .NET trivia is what we're talking here. So if you want to, uh, you know, play the quiz... Send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. We're going to put a blog post about this, too, so watch my blog and Richard's blog for, for more information. And finally, the emails here. So if you were listening to our show uh, on XHTML and you're still not convinced, this should convince you. We got, a, uh, and we got an email from Mark Travail, and uh, he's in the UK, and he says this. Guys, I've been listening to your recent podcasts and gather that you don't get the point of XHTML, CSS, and tableless layouts. We spent much of last year going through the storms of converting to XHTML and AAA, AAA accessibility, and the weather is really nice on the other side. My HTML is smaller, clearer, and much more maintainable, but that is just a side effect. Read Jeffrey Zeldman's Designing for Web Standards. For the full nine yards, but here's my stab at it. Why XHTML? Well, it's essentially HTML5, 
In other words, the next refinement of HTML. Just because it's got an X in front doesn't mean that you can ignore it any more than you ignored HTML4. <laughs> kind of like that. As <laughs> if, right? If it's got an X, I can ignore it, right? Uh, it tidies up the syntax so that uncertainty about where things end is resolved. This makes it much easier for other systems to parse and interpret your HTML and helps cascading style sheets know exactly where to apply the formatting. A real-world example, InfoPath demands XHTML for imported HTML for its forms. So much so, they packaged a version of HTML Tidy on the CD. That must be a XHTML enforcer. I guess. I don't know. Never heard of it, but uh, that doesn't... Don't, that doesn't mean anything. I haven't heard of a lot of things. By the way, just try some non-IE browsers like Opera, Firefox, and Netscape, and you realize just how far behind IE6 is now, both as a user experience and in support for the latest standards. Ah, uh, okay. That's a double-edged sword, you know. Because these other browsers fail, that makes IE far behind, and IE doesn't fail. All right, well, double-edged sword there. Anyway, I don't argue his point. Why CSS? The CSS thing is about taking the visual layout aspects of the HTML as much as possible. This is not really about doing pretty things like Zen Garden. It's about allowing your pages to be a logical structure that other tools can read. That's a really important point. Did you know that in the UK, I can be taken to court if my websites discriminate against disabled users? Yes, it's true. That means I have to make sure my pages will read sensibly with a text reader. Traditional HTML pages don't tend to read well, especially if they have table layouts. Table layouts break up a web page into an illogical order. You can't get accessible pages that way. The text reads in a weird order 99% of the time. Now for a real-world example. I've got a LifePalm PDA. It's a real cool PDA with a 4-gig drive, Wi-Fi, etc., but no Microsoft software in sight. I can download your podcast direct onto the PDA from your site using its browser in my office wireless LAN. The trouble is your table-based layout is rubbish on the small screen. If you have written it using XHTML and full CSS without tables, you could just provide a separate style sheet for PDA users, which lays out the columns in a simple sequence and improve my UI experience by 100 times. The world has moved on. It isn't just about Windows and IE anymore. XHTML and CSS are the best options we have today for future-proofing our HTML. Anyway, I enjoy the chat, and keep it up. Thanks, Mark Travail. Email number two, much shorter. This is from Kim Major, who's from uh, Renaissance Computer Systems in Israel. Dear Carl, Richard, and Jeff, I met a major milestone this week. After being away from the software industry, at least professionally for a couple of years, I was invited to join a software company a couple months ago. That was when I was introduced to .NET Rocks. I must say, I was blown away. Being a general manager for almost four years with no connection to the software community, I now felt like I was reborn, both by the job and by .NET Rocks. So back to the major milestone. This week, I finished listening to all the recordings of DNR and Mondays. Yes, I've been one of those guys that people look at when I start to cry from laughing when listening to Mark Miller. I don't, I don't know what to do now that I have to wait a whole week for a new show. That I, happens to us too, you know. Yeah, we can't. We end up having to stop recording because we're crying, we're laughing so hard. In fact, I think there's only one bit that he ever did where he cracked himself up so much and we just kept rolling. But anyway, 
<laughs> I just want to say one thing more. Thank you for introducing me to the American folk song with your performance of My Darling Clementine. I have just one word. Brilliant. Keep up the good work, Kim Major, Israel. Thanks, Kim. We love hearing that uh, people are enjoying the show. And speaking of the show, let's get on with it. Joel Semeniak is a founder of Imaginate Resources Corporation, a Canadian-based Microsoft Gold partner. He is also a Microsoft Regional Director and has a degree in computer science from the University of Manitoba. Joel has spent the last 12 years providing educational development and infrastructure consulting services to customers throughout North America. Joel specializes in helping organizations realize their potential through maturing their software development and information technology practices. He employs a customized and incremental approach, promoting the ability to quickly adopt and tailor processes and technologies that best suit the needs of the organization. Backed by industry best practices and his experience, Joel works with organizations to ensure that their technology supports the vision of their business and is adaptable to the ever-changing marketplace to accomplish this responsiveness without sacrificing quality and to realize earlier and greater returns on their technology investment. For Joel and his customers, the ultimate goal is to achieve superior business agility. You can reach Joel by email at joels at imaginets.com. Welcome, Joel. Hey, how are you? Doing fine. Doing fine. couple of Canadians I'm talking to you today. I feel a little outnumbered. Don't mind telling you. You are outnumbered. How's it going, eh? <laughs> Joel, it sounds like you've got uh, got your hands full with what you're doing up there in Canada, in North America. Yeah, we're uh, we're really seeing a lot of interest in, uh, you know, from different customers who are really looking at improving their, their software development practices. You know, lots of uh, different um, companies who are developing sh- software for either off the shelf or, uh, you know, even insurance companies and investment companies who have been spending a lot of time and effort um, building software are starting to realize that um, some of the more traditional methods or maybe even some of the non-methods, um, meaning that, you know, a lot of companies take a cowboy approach to developing software, uh, isn't really cutting it anymore. Uh, And businesses are really trying to focus on the value of IT. And so what we've been doing with customers is really kind of working with their IT staff to take a look at different ways that they can improve their their software engineering practices so that they can be more in line with the business. Uh, And we've had a lot of really great successes so far. It sounds like a a good, healthy application of common sense, you know? you know, it's it's really funny. We talk about the the concept of common sense a lot, and, and we realize that it's not as common as you might think. Um, oh. <laughs> and the other aspect of 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 the common sense aspect is um, it's usually isolated to certain groups. And so most of the times when we work with customers, we're actually there to extract some of that common sense yeah. uh, and bring it together so that it's in fact common uh, across all the teams. Um, and then, you know, we take that common sense and try to apply it to technology with tools like uh, uh, like um, Team System. Yeah. And I do want to talk about Team System, but um, I, I sort of want to go back a little bit and talk about your uh, your experience in the software development world a little bit before that. How'd you get started in this business? Well, it's kind of interesting. I grew up on a farm. and uh, Which naturally lends itself to software development. 
It it sure does because one of the, one of the things I used to do as a farm boy was go out and pick rocks and shovel manure, and uh, one of the things I told myself you know early in my life was I don't want to do that for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, and and so my my inspiration was was a pile of poop, uh, <laughs> you know, on 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 my um, mine too, know, but it was lawn. called the TRS eighty actually. <laughs> hey. Well, I, I had a I had a trash eighty as well. So, and uh, so I went and I moved to the big metropolis of Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I and I got my computer science degree there. Um, and you know, halfway through our my computer science degree, I realized I was tired of being completely poor. Uh, you know, eating craft dinner. Uh, you know, six times a day, um, you know, uh, reusing coffee filters, uh, you know, the whole thing just to keep me awake. And uh, a friend of mine, Duncan McKenzie, and I started our first consulting company when we were in our third year of, of computer science, where we actually worked uh, developing software for a, for a local television station. Uh, and, we, and we actually wrote uh, an entire television scheduling system. And, and, and hold on here. It, this is Visual Fox Pro 2.6 oh. for the Macintosh. Ouch. Yeah. Wow. It's fantastic. Man. Um, uh, from that point, I actually uh, uh, started on with as a, as a Microsoft certified trainer and a, and a training company, and spent about a year and a half actually traveling all over, over uh, North America, giving classes in in Windows 95 and, and, and Exchange 4.0, and I think it was VB2 at that point or VB3. Yeah. Um, and then uh, slowly got on to some fairly major uh, investment and insurance projects in, in Winnipeg. Um, where we started to uh, really start to push technology in and starting to realize even back then that, you know what, the, the technology really wasn't the hard part at all. Yeah. Uh, it was the people and the interaction with one another that was really driving the quality of our software. Huh. Um, you know, and I've played so many different roles as a software engineer from you know, from a low-level developer, uh, meaning that I didn't really care about, you know, what the entire system was doing. I just wrote my code and went home at the end of the day to a, to a project lead and a project manager who felt that we had, you know, complete responsibility over, you know, fulfilling the business needs. Um, and back then I even started to realize that I, maybe I should have gotten a degree in psychology rather yeah. than computer science because it turned out that the better successful interactions of the people on our team actually led to higher quality software. Yeah. And it really didn't depend on the technologies that we were using. I mean, granted, you know, technology was helping to solve some critical problems that we were facing. Yeah. But it, when it came to the success of the project as a whole, it really was about how we did our work and how we interacted with one another. Joel, I got to tell you, I took a class in systems, system analysis in college. And one of the first things the guy did was he showed us, he, he said, when you get go to a job, the first thing you do is ask for an organizational chart. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That, that was like the first thing we learned in a systems analysis class yeah. is learn who to talk to, you know, and where, where you fit in. <laughs> yeah. L learn your place in the pecking order. Learn your place. Exactly. And Yeah. And, but, you know, there's another side of that as a consultant is when they can't produce one or when they start talking about all the exceptions to it, you get an idea of how organized or not organized they yeah. are. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. So, uh, and this is, you know, we obviously want to talk about uh, team system. And I would recommend to the listener, if this is your introduction to team system, that 
you go back and listen to the show that we did at TechEd just a few months ago uh, at TechEd with the team system guys for a good sort of overview uh, from the Microsoft perspective. But what I'd like to do, I don't want to spend a lot of time on sort of the fundamentals of team system and what it is, but um, Joel, but I am interested on, you know, your elevator speech about team system because that's, believe it or not, that's a really important thing, especially for developers who are trying to get the attention of their managers and the people, the decision makers about uh, about going with something like Team System? It's very important how you, uh, you know, how you present it. So, so what do you? What's your what's your elevator speech for Team System? Yeah, I have to say that my elevator speech is, is kind of different for the different type of organizations that I, I talk to. But essentially, when I when I talk about Team System, I talk about it as being not just a tool for developers and not just simply a tool for that enables um, people on your team to collaborate better. But it's fundamentally a brand new platform that is going to allow for us to uh, develop software in a completely uh, revolutionary way, meaning that we're going to focus on the interaction of our team instead of just the code. Uh, and for the first time, Microsoft has a product that addresses that particular issue. Yeah. Okay. And so the response is, uh, if the response is, well, we have a system in place that works pretty well, you know, why, why, why should we spend a lot of time and money, you know, learning something new? Uh, first of all, I haven't heard that response yet. Okay. <laughs> that, that's what I was thinking. I've talked to uh, literally hundreds of customers all over the world, and I, and I haven't actually heard a single company say, we've got a good system already, um, you know, don't, don't bother us. Every single customer has said, wow, you know, I'm, I'm interested in listening, about, uh, listening all about Team System because I'm not sure our current system or our current methodology is actually working for us. Well, that's helpful. And, and that's really the note that Team System is actually... Um, is actually playing for customers. They're truly interested to see what Team System has to offer because it, it, it's different than other tools that are out there. Um, it, uh, it, it's more fundamental to, uh, to, to bridge the gaps between some of the tools and the processes that we've been using uh, yeah. traditionally. And it also does require that you get your shit in gear and get organized about things, right? Which well, is... you know, there's, there's two different perspectives with Team System. One is... Um, one is more of a, a holistic approach, and, and of course, that's the one I favor, which means that if you're going to adopt something like Team System, you might want to step back a little bit and look at, you know, like you said, getting your shit in order. What do I need to do to make the best use of Team System on a holistic basis? Right. However, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, meaning that, you know, mm. there's a no-brainer. Oh, look, I've actually finally got a... Um, a source control system that doesn't corrupt once a week. Yeah. Or, oh, oh look, I have some built-in <laughs> unit testing uh, and code coverage tools that I can use immediately yeah. without actually thinking much about how it's going to affect my processes or my teams. So there's really two perspectives there, and I think that most organizations are going to probably be jumping on the low-hanging fruit bandwagon at the same time as taking a look at their processes as a whole and understanding how Team System is going to support them in the long term. You think I think it's a smart thing that Microsoft's done is to put in these easy pieces to get. Look, we get some testing suites. Yeah. Look, we get a you know a, a source code documenter. We get something other than VSS. It's integrated so that you don't even have to grasp the full potential of what Team System can do for you to have some reason to at least get it installed on the desktops and get it to work. Absolutely. How granular is it? I mean, in terms of the low-hanging fruit, I know the class designer is built into uh, Visual Studio, 
but uh, you know what what are the other are these other pieces something that you can use without having to uh to purchase a, a great big package or you know i guess let's answer the question how granular is it well, I mean, it has a fair amount of granularity. I mean, uh, individually, you have you know three different SKUs of uh, of team system in terms of what the the developer, or the architect, or the tester is going to see. So fundamentally, you're going to get extra architecture tools that will help you design and implement your SOA based applications. That's that's great. You know, those are independent from from all other pieces in the system. You also have additional developer tools, like you can uh, perform uh, dynamic code analysis, li- looking at your code or what your application is doing while. It's running, kind of, uh, you know, left before you'd have to either go out and uh, write your own tools or go out and, ex- and buy really, really expensive tools to give you that type of information. And then there's some extra testing and test management tools, and that they all of them kind of don't really require your, uh, your organization to um, change any of its processes, and they can be used independently from one another. Now, the key there is, is that if you do have Team Foundation Server, you can then kind of open up Pandora's box a little bit and say, okay, now I have these individual tools. I can also allow these tools to talk together uh, as well as talk with the foundation server to even have more value. You know, for example, instead of just having good unit test tools um, um, and the ability to execute my unit tests, uh, I can now publish all of the results of my unit tests into Team Foundation, yeah. those test results get aggregated and turned into the data warehouse where I can then perform regular reports on the quality of my software. That's really, uh, that's really what it's all about is without the Team Foundation server, you don't have any way to sort of aggregate information in your team and make any sense out of it. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's when, it's, when you start getting into metrics. Many organizations that I work with, we start talking about what kind of metrics can we start gathering around your process. Right. And it's really funny because as soon as I mention that with most companies, they kind of look at each other going, you know, we, we don't want to go there because <laughs> that's, that's tough. We don't want to start gathering metrics. We don't understand right. how to gather metrics. Right. Fundamentally, Team system is already gathering metrics for you just based on the activities that you would perform. Right. Now it's just a matter of looking at a chart to, yeah. at any point in time. And we're, and we're talking about many charts, you know, 50, 60. I, I don't know exa- the exact number of reports that will be shipped, but we're, we're talking about dozens of reports that teams can use to not only track what they're doing, but also use it as a, you know, a predictive nature. You yeah. know, are we, are we going to hit our next milestone or our quality attributes that we want to have for our next build? You know, where are we with our development cycle and does that match what our plan is? Um, and also it adds a huge degree of transparency to your organization. I mean, fundamentally, it would be great to just post those reports up to your customers and say, you know what, instead of me writing a status report for you every bloody week that takes me four or five hours of, you know, my life away from me, just go and look at these reports yourself. Right. Yeah, good. Uh, let's, can we, do you mind if we take a, uh, some time and dive into some of these actual designers and some of the tools in here? Because I, I get the feeling, I get the sense the listener is just dying to, to, to rip into the meat of this thing. Um, starting with the application designer. So is this typically where you would start the architectural project? Is this sort of taking the place of the whiteboard, what most people are using the whiteboard for in a software design process? 
You know, absolutely. What you know, the first the first step of you know architecting your solution is typically kind of brainstorming where your your things are going to live and how they're going to communicate with one another. And the application designer really gives you that uh, that palette for, uh, that will allow you to separate your application into into buckets. Right. And then. Uh, allow you to connect up those buckets and specify the interfaces for communicating between those buckets. So, for example, now, what what kinds of things might you be able to uh, use? Sure. So, on my application designer, I might you know I might be designing uh, a really great new application for an insurance company that's going to be comprised of an Excel spreadsheet that's going to get uh, the the day's rates, for example, um, and it's going to be comprised of a smart client application as well as a web interface that will allow customers from the external world to maybe view their insurance information. Those those three uh, client side com- uh, components will actually have different representations in your model. And we can also represent a web service that they all might be communicating with. And what we can do with that web service is actually define what its interface is going to look like and what interfaces it exposes to be consumed by these clients. And then, you know, using the the connection tool, we can actually connect the dots up together to say, you know, these client components are going to consume this web service. And underneath the hood, we might even represent a database or another external web service that 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 initial web service will consume. And again, we connect those up. Now, fundamentally, you know, it it starts off as a nice pretty picture, but you'll notice right away that there are some interesting implementation details that the model is asking you about, like language. You know, for for example, on my web service uh, component, I can specify the language, which gives you an indication that I'm going to use this model to to do something for me. Mm-hmm. And in reality, once you have sat down and, uh, and designed your application, you can actually get it to generate uh, your solution for you. I mean, this is just a skeleton solution, sure. but it does a, actually a fairly good job of creating all your projects, setting up your web uh, web services, creating the interfaces as you've defined them in your model, and then it keeps it in, in a perfect synchronization with the model uh, during your right. implementation. And if anything falls out of line with the, the goals of the model, it'll it'll tell you. I think that's one of the big benefits of these designers, right? Yeah, well, uh, there's a, a separate designer called the Logical Data Center Designer. Now, this is a, this is a really interesting designer because what this designer will allow you to do is kind of model where the services are on your destination um, um, environment. So if I've got a production environment, I might have an IIS server inside of a DMZ. I might have my database inside of a secure um, network zone, and I might have my... Um, clients, my Windows clients, and even my some of my browser clients instead of an intranet, I can actually model that stuff out. More importantly, this model will have configuration information kind of built right in. For example, I can take a look at an IIS server um, in my logical data uh, data di- uh, diagram and specify its IIS attributes. I can even take it a step further and say, you know what? Go and suck in the IIS settings from an actual server and bring them right into the model. Now, this is really fundamentally important because later on, what you can do is take your application diagram and you can do a trial deployment. Essentially, when you're doing a trial deployment, you're mapping your application components on where you think they're going to live in your logical data center. And based on the settings of your application and comparing those against the underlying settings of your logical infrastructure, the the, um, Visual Studio will actually find inconsistencies between those two and tell you right away. And the way I uh, typically explain this to people is that it's like crash testing a car while it's still inside of a, a CAD model. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good analogy. What I find interesting about this, of course, is that an awful lot of what you're describing there is not a development process. This is infrastructure planning. This is IT people using this tool. Yeah, what a concept. But not even the architecture Um, of the application, but the architecture of its implementation. This is an IT problem. What IIS server am I going to use? What settings are they going to have? Those kinds of things are not typically dealt with by developers. You know, the usual model that people use for development is they build the app and then they give it the IT guy and say, make it work. And that's when the IT guy goes, oh, hey, this violates all of our security rules. We can't do it this way. Yeah. Folks, do yourself a favor and check out our friends Data Dynamics website, datadynamics.com, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for uh, Windows Forms and ASP.NET. Very nice stuff. You compile the uh, the reports right into your application, ship them with your assemblies. Uh, has all the great features you come to expect in a reporting engine, and you can use uh, ActiveX controls right in the reports too. So, great stuff. Uh, Data Dynamics has been an excellent sponsor of .NET Rocks uh, for a long time. They, uh, you know, they deserve a little bit of uh, your love and attention. So, go check them out at www.datadynamics.com. So what comes first in the process, the data center designer or the application design? They can be happening at the same time. In fact, I'd encourage um, everybody to start off with their logical data center designer by just modeling out, you know, what's our target platform. I got to work with, um, I actually did, I wrote a white paper on um, Bungie uh, a few few months ago. And as you may or may not know, Bungie.net is, is, just a fantastic site if you're a Halo 2 fanatic, um, <laughs> allowing you to see some of your uh, Xbox uh, uh, Halo 2 stats right on the website within like 5 to 15 seconds of your gameplay. Wow. And, I mean, this site gets like a million hits a day, I'm oh, sorry, 5 million hits a day, wow. and over 1 million online games played. And so fundamentally, when I was interviewing them, I asked, like, what was the most critical aspect of your design? And they said, design nothing. It was all about getting the infrastructure guys involved as soon as we started. Right. You know, How are we going to be able to handle this load? The, con- the constraints of what uh, the platform is going to provide for us. And then right. we designed our app according to that. Right. And and that fundamentally allowed them to be able to scale the way they needed to scale and, and perform the way they needed to perform. And so fundamentally, I mean, that's a great best practice. Joel, how far does this data center designer go? Like, you know, when we've talked to some of the sort of SQL experts like Kim Tripp and Stephen Forte and guys like that, you know, they're they're very concerned about, you know, what kinds of data go on what kinds of stripes and, and all that kind of stuff. Do we get down to that level? Uh, no. 
what what we see is, uh, you know, the term logical says we're not thinking about physical implementation. In fact, a lot of people have emailed me saying, you know, why can't I put a database on the same server as an IIS server? Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is that the logical data center is representing services within your infrastructure, I not see. really any of the hardware or its implementation. Okay. In the future, there will be designers that will allow you to map your logical data center to your physical data center, uh, which will say, you know what, that box right there will run IIS and SQL Server, and in this way, and here are the settings. And you always uh, have you always have comments that you can add, attach to uh, these entities, right? So you can say, for example, you know, this is going to be comprised of a SQL Server that's got uh, you know three r- stripes, and you know. With, with the following implementations, right? I mean, sure. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, you know, we, we envision that it's really not going to be the IT specialists that are going to be using the, the logical data source, okay. uh, data designer. I think, uh, to begin with, it's going to be your overall application architects who are going to be working with the IT guys to represent that model. Uh, and, because I think fundamentally, I don't know if it's going to be a great tool for them to use to model their infrastructure, uh, and they've already heavily invested typically in modeling uh, in, in, in other tools. Um, however, the, the power comes in, in things like your, you know, uh, a weekly build or release cycle where you can yeah. continually test your application against this logical data center and, and try out particular changes. So if the IT guys come back to you and says, well, you know, we're going to change things around. We're going to change some IIS settings. We can change it in the model and then do a trial deployment against that to see, you know, what breaks. Now, there's a a nice configuration uh, application in here of the settings and constraints editor. Is that, you know, other than what you obviously use configuration screens for, is there anything interesting that we ought to know about about this thing? Yeah, well, the settings and constraints editor is primarily the, the way that you actually set up the, the characteristics of the pieces of the model. So if I'm looking at an IIS server, I might actually specify that, you know, anything, uh, anything, uh, this is going to be a Windows 2003 server. It's going to have this particular service pack. Uh, I'm going to require this level of security with anything that runs on top of it. So the settings and constraints editor is really that interface for um, IT guys or your architects to be able to set those constraints up inside of the model. Okay. Nothing, nothing spectacular there. It's just your basic configuration. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, the system designer. Let's talk about that next. The system designer is, is, is kind of interesting. I mean, we, when we have an application, um, you know, it's, you know, it typically has one architecture. The system designer allows us to kind of allow our application uh, to run in different modes. In fact, what happens is the system designer can have its own sets of settings and constraints uh, for things that you have represented inside of your application diagram. And then you can actually use this... Uh, create systems that kind of package up some of those settings and constraints into uh, more manageable buckets that you would actually deploy onto a data center. So, for example, your application... your application architecture could be quite large or quite uh, consuming. What you can do is you can break apart your application uh, into different systems, uh, each with their own settings and constraints and so forth, and actually have portions of them kind of uh, sectioned out so that you can uh, do trial deployments for those portions instead of the application as a whole. When you you say systems, you mean physical systems, right? No, no. It's still working at the application architecture level. Okay. Um, But it just allows you to kind of override some of the application settings and group them together in a a bit more of a logical way. So would you say this is sort of like a a drill down from the application designer? 
Yeah, that's typically the, the progress that you would make. You'd start with your application design um, that kind of depicts your entire application architecture, and then you drill down and create systems that would represent kind of units of deployment of your, uh, of your application architecture. Okay, and the deployment designer then is the final step in, in this? Uh... You bet. The deployment designer is where you start mapping your application architecture onto your logical data center. So if I have a logical data center that has an IIS server, mm-hmm. I might stick onto that uh, or map onto that um, logical data center my web services as well as my, my, my external website or something like that. And that's where I would actually perform that mapping. And it will also do that level of validation that will say, you know what, I don't think that component's going to work there because it needs a, communica- a direct communication link to the database and none exists. Yeah. Uh, and it will validate that right on the spot. Okay, so we've we've developed uh, we've designed the application. We've used a system designer to sort of configure the systems in it. We've de- uh, used a logical data center designer to provide a a framework of of the infrastructure, and the deployment designer to map a deployment across that d- data center. Now we've got the general architecture of the a- of the of the application, uh, you know, at a high level. Now it's time to talk about classes and building classes. So. Uh, the class designer is the next place that you would go here. Um, and what's well, the, the difference? Next step is you probably want to generate your app. Um, all right. I mean, it, it actually will create for you all your projects and your web services and set them all up and ready for you to continue on the refinement process. Okay. And that, you know, that's where you start getting into the code and thus the class designer. Class designer is not part of team system, but it's a significant part of the entire process and really is a good representation of where Microsoft is going to be taking the modeling, uh, in general. Okay. Um, the class designer is a, an amazing tool, and, and it's an implementation of a, a domain-specific language uh, speci- uh, in reality. And what it does is it gives a representation of your classes. Now, most other modeling um, tools that I've used in the past have a separate, you know, a separate represent- a representation of the class, um, and you end up generating code from that from that model and then trying to reverse engineer it every single time you make any changes in right. both ways. Right. What the class designer does is it actually uses the, the, the code itself as the definition of the model. So fundamentally, when you're using the class designer, you're writing code. Okay. It's kind of actually like using the forms designer. When you're using the forms designer inside of uh, Visual Studio, you're writing code. Mm-hmm. Code gets generated in the background. And it, the same is true for the class designer. If you go right over to the code and make some changes, those changes are immediately reflected in the model. Right. There's no reverse engineering whatsoever. Now, obviously, for someone who's going to spend a lot of time in the class designer just designing a lot of a lot of classes, you know, they're going to want to have all the features that they they need in that class designer. Where are we in terms of feature completeness and in, in the class designer? Is this like a a version one thing? Is this something that you're going to use sometimes, most of the time, all the time? Is it as everything there? What do you, um, what's your take on well, that? I mean, it, it's it's really. Um we have to think about it as a tool for helping us write code. And so if we can accept that, then I would say that the class designer is fairly feature complete. Uh, I don't, there's not going to be any major features that will be released for the class designer specifically that, that are going to dramatically change how we use it uh, okay. before the release. 
However, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, I'm used to using UML classes. I'm used to right. representing abstract classes. I'm used to representing things that don't have anything to do with code. And that's not what the class designer's for. It's fundamentally a tool for helping you write code, not to perform any level of business analysis or anything like that. Yeah. But it does sound to me like you won't build a class any other way. I'm addicted to it. I mean, you know, I might be in demo mode and, and training mode these days, but fundamentally when I sit down and I look at uh, writing a class, I am immediately drawn to the class designer. And it might be just because I'm lazy, but I'm finding that I'm way more um, um, productive with the class designer. And I don't have to worry about syntax of the stuff that's gener uh, generating out the door. And then I can toggle right, you know, between the class designer and the code almost instantly and kind of work in both worlds at the same time. And I, you know, and most organizations who have started using the class designer and, and some other beta projects are, are completely addicted to it. You can use existing base classes as the uh, uh, existing classes, base classes for new classes you design with the class designer? For sure. And it will even model out for you uh, uh, .NET classes. Hmm. Hmm. So let's follow along the path here. We've gone through our architectural design. We've gotten to the point where we're generating classes. Now it's time to write some code, right? Oh, code is the good place. Code is the happy place. <laughs> um, now, when we start writing about code, we, we can start introducing the concept of source control. I mean, we want this code right. to live somewhere, right? Um, uh, so fundamentally, we're starting to think about uh, Team Foundation Server. Team Foundation Server is going to provide you with a brand new source code repository, um, and and it's not just the next version of Visual Source Safe. It's a completely re-engineered kind of built-on web services, uh, built-on SQL 2005 um, tool that we can use to st uh, not only persist our source code, but actually use to help increase the quality of our source code. Um, so let me step back a little bit. And one of the things that we can do to increase the, the quality of our source code is to use um, what are called static analysis tools. Static analysis tools uh, will actually you know, rip through our code and find um, problems with it according to rules that are defined by um, by us, if we so need. Uh, many organizations have uh, have used a product called FXCOP before, right. and right now we have FXCOP kind of cooked right into the IDE, and we can actually do code analysis, static code analysis, on our code right right within inside of Visual Studio. Interestingly enough. One of the features of the source control engine is that we can put policies on um, on the source control library to say, you know what, I'm not even going to let you check in your code unless you've run static code analysis on it. And so what we're doing is we're kind of forcing quality of the code to be early and often, right even through the uh, the source control engine. Well, and these are these kinds of analyses are just basically you could set up rules on what needs to be in code. The the classic one, of course, would be a block of comments. Yeah, for right. sure. I mean, there's literally hundreds of rules that uh, that are available for the static code analysis. And most organizations, uh, um, you know, I can write a typical hello world application and probably find thirty errors in it with all the rules that are turned on. Um, <laughs> so it will. Uh, you know, most organizations will, will tune down the rules, but all of the rules kind of implement everything from naming conventions of your variables to ways that you've, you've designed your application with regard to security, even uh, the way you've uh, set up your components and the interfaces between them. It's, it's a very comprehensive set. More importantly, if you, if you need a specific rule um, that isn't shipped with the, uh, the static code analysis tools, 
and just go off and write it yourself. Uh, there's a really well published uh, API, uh, and it's uh, you know not rocket surgery when it comes to uh, writing some of those parsers. Joel, you know, I I I tend to think that the the next step after designing and generating your classes would be, you know, project management because that's sort of where 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 you start. You start in the manager's office or in a meeting, and uh, who's going to take on what pieces? And the in the project manager who's got a schedule in Microsoft Project will you know assign the different work items to these different developers, and as they develop code, of course, you have co- source control and things like that, but. But that, that, to me, that project management piece really seems like something, uh, I, I don't know about you, but wherever I go, I see Outlook as the primary uh, <laughs> means of communication for project management work items. You know, if you're lucky, yeah. If you're sure. lucky, yeah. Uh, I totally agree with you. And in fact, you know, that's that's where the project's probably going to begin and that's where it's going to end yeah. uh, is, is with the project management role. Uh, so even before you're probably even cutting any type of architecture, you're thinking about uh, the constraints that are given to you for implementing implementing your project. You know, right. what's my budget? Uh, how many people do I have to work with? How long should this thing take? So fundamentally, as a project manager, for the first time ever, we, we now have the ability to, you know, bring the project manager into the world of the software developer. Before, there was this adversarial relationship between the project manager. He would walk around with his... Um, you know, with his, uh, um, his, uh, his, you know, if he's lucky, um, his, uh, his tablet or something like that, kind mm-hmm. of asking people where they are on their project and so forth, right. uh, or being a dictator and saying, you know, we need to have all this stuff done by this date. But fundamentally, the role of a project manager is to help ensure the health of the project from beginning to end. They're the facilitator of the entire thing. So doesn't it make sense for them to, to work and work with tools that are closely connected with the tools of the developers? So Team System does provide a whole bunch of different project management um, perspectives that, that are really, really quite important to the success of uh, software engineering projects. I mean, first and foremost, we have the concept of a work item. A work item is, you know, at a high level, is just something that needs to get done. Right. And work items can take the form of a, of a bug, uh, a work item could take the form of a task, uh, and the work item could take a form of something like a requirement or even a change request. Do this. And, and that's all de- done declaratively. Yeah. Now, fundamentally, we also have the ability to link in those work items with tools that a project manager would actually n- normally use, like Microsoft Project or Microsoft Excel. And so um, a project manager will actually set up uh, a project schedule instead of Microsoft uh, Project and then publish those tasks over to a team system where they can then be assigned to people and tracked on an ongoing basis as work items. Uh, and developers would interact by, uh, with that by just kind of looking at the work items that have been assigned to them. In Visual Studio. Let's, in let's Visual point. Studio, absolutely. Yeah, you, you open up the project and boing, hey, you got this task to do. I mean, I think sure. that's really, really cool. Uh, developers are all over that. That's what they want to do. Go to their client, pop it open. What am I doing today? Yeah, and they don't me. have to ask. They don't have to look. Off I go. And then when they finish it, of course, they hit the big happy button, and then you know the the schedule gets updated. Or what what happens when they press the happy button? Well, it's it's interesting when they press the happy button. The work item does something, and that is key. And that comes back to the definition of the of the methodology. You see, in traditional lists, like an Excel spreadsheet or something, yeah, I might have a list of bugs, and I might track when it's done and who it was issued to, but there's no workflow behind that. Work items have workflow. Work yeah. items have state. Work items have the ability to facilitate process. 
And fundamentally, that's pretty darn cool. So for the first time ever, my project manager's not bonking people on the head going, you know, you didn't do that after you did this. Right. You didn't pass that over to test. You know, that's the classic one. You, you said you finished the code, but you never passed it to test. Right. It's just been sitting there waiting. Exactly. And, and yep. work items will help guide that process along. And, and fundamentally, I mean, that's the, one of the biggest roles of a project manager. I mean, let's take away all that crappy logistical work that a project manager has to do and let them fundamentally manage the project. Um, and, and there's also the, a different paradigm shift as well. Project managers have been trying to kind of map everything inside of a Microsoft project, you know, right down to the, la- to the last little development step. It's not really easy to do, and it's actually in some cases – it makes much more sense to manage some of those things in lists, like in Microsoft Excel. Yeah. Well, that's good because Microsoft Excel can also talk to Team System and allow a project manager to kind of manage lists of stuff, you know, lists of risk, uh, lists of issues that they need to resolve, um, lists of tasks at a high level, um, you know, lists of change requests that will be going through the project. Um, so fundamentally, they're going to be using the same tools that they'd normally use, uh, except now going to be publishing all that data inside a team system so it would be communicated with the rest of the team. I think the kicker to all this is the fact that all this stuff as you're logging it is going to end up in the reports as well. It just falls out of it naturally. Uh, yeah, good, yeah. yeah, and that is amazing. So, for example, if you're a developer and you're assigned like 10 bugs and you're you're hitting off those bugs and you're feeling good about life and... You know, nothing ruins your day more than the project manager coming in to see you and saying, okay, did you fill out the, you know, the report that says what you did today? Yeah. I mean, God, yeah. that kills you. What, what we've got inside of Team <laughs> System is, you know, as I fix a bug, I go over to my list and I click on done. I'm done. Go on to the next bug. Yeah. That's it. Well, you know, I, I, I still think there's an adversarial relationship between developers and project managers. It's now just been reduced to instead of them, you know, you know, sticking a post-it on your, you know, on your, on your monitor now that they're just sending you little messages through Visual Studio, right? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, the, the work is still going to be there. However, the, uh, the, you know, the bonking of the head and the continual prodding. Um, could you tell me if you're done these tasks, please? Uh, yeah. You know, um, I remember when I was a developer, I had this one project manager. He would always come over to me. He says, well, how, how, how far have you gotten on this one task? And I'd tell him 83%. <laughs> and he'd go, oh, okay, 83%. And he'd write down 83% and, and scoot away. And I'm like, what the hell is 83%? Like, I'm either done or I'm not done. Right. And, and, and if you give me 10 things to do and two weeks to do it, guess what? All of those 10 things won't get done until the very last day. That's right. You know, because I'll do a little bit of everything during those two weeks and get them all done on the same day. Yeah. So don't ask me where I'm at. I'll tell you when I'm done. That's very hard. I think it's something for developers fundamentally to now I'm using your word to uh, do is uh, is to figure out sort of, you know, how long is this going to take, you know, in general. And it's easier now than it used to be, but uh, it used to be really hard. But, you know, now I it's still it's still something that's difficult to do. I mean, just, you, you know, go away. Just let me write code. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's I mean, done when, when it's done. When you take a look at some of the biggest constraints in software engineering, there's, there's five of them. Um, but, you know, the biggest constraint, believe it or not, is people. Yeah. How productive are people? You know, yeah. think about your eight-hour day at the office. How much time do you spend doing work? I bet you it's about five and a half hours. You know, you get into work, you have a coffee, you talk to some buddies, you get on the phone, you're answering your email, you got messenger happening. 
And so when you think about all of those distractions, geez, those five and a half hours are gold. We want to make uh, the most of those as humanly possible. Are you a big fan of multiple monitors for developers? That, you know, I have to be careful here because my developers in my company might be listening and saying, hey, wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm absolutely for it. And you know what, especially with Visual Studio 2005, the the overwhelming comment that I've heard from a lot of people is like, there's too many damn windows, you know, and they need the ability to separate some of those windows on on, on other monitors. Um, And, you know, there's just so much happening inside of the studio these days that uh, multiple multiple monitors is, uh, is, uh, is needed. And uh, I'm sure that when I go back to Winnipeg, I'm going to be hit up with 20 new monitors. That costs you a few thousand bucks right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry. That's an expensive comment. Sorry, man. Um, Let's just, not finish the process here. I've been really yeah, enjoying yeah, yeah. this. I want to keep going. So I've got my first round uh, of code done. Hey, we've done a... We, let's go to the build and then do some maintenance. Oh, the build is exciting. I mean, fundamentally, I'm going to keep on using that term, by the way, because it's my term. I, I've, I'm, I've now adopted it. You as, don't as know this, own. but every time you say that, Richard and I take a shot. So, <laughs> Hey, excellent. Yeah. So do I. Um, <laughs> but um, build has been one of the most important aspects of developer process control that we've used in the past five to ten years. When you think about getting into the daily build cycle, I mean, we really want that to happen early and often. Why? Because it helps us solve some of those quality uh, problems that we're going to hit later on, those integration problems, early on in the development cycle. And it also forces our developers to be very careful with what they're checking into the source control system because when we do do a, a daily build, what we do is we rip it all out of source control, we automate the entire build cycle, and we dish something out the other end. Mm-hmm. Now, before we've, you know, we've been bombarded with a whole lot of other tools that were out there, like uh, Nant or Cruise Control or something like that. We, mm-hmm. we make heavy use of those in our organization right now. But now all that automated build stuff, which is based on MS Build, by the way, is one of the most powerful, you know, task execution programs you'll ever see right now in, in, right. in, in the world of the developer um, is called team build and so team build is essentially uh, ms build on heavy steroids i mean we're talking schwarzenegger steroids here um (laughs) and and essentially what uh, team build is is a whole bunch of uh ms custom ms build tasks that uh, know how to talk to team system and all automated through custom.target files as well. And so, for example, we'll have tasks that are able to understand how to get source code out of the team system source repository. We'll have specific tasks implemented on how to execute, or sorry, that know how to execute um, unit tests against that code. We'll have specific tasks that uh, know how to publish the build results back into the build database, which are then incorporated into the data warehouse at a later time. And so when we, we, when we create an automated build, we're not only, um, you know, automating the cycles of builds, you know, so that we can actually have it happen every single night. But we're also taking quality attributes and metrics and sticking all that stuff inside of the team system so we can track that on an ongoing basis. How extensible is that? Do you have, uh, do you have events like build events that happen like you did? Yeah. Um, team system itself has a fairly comprehensive eventing engine. Um, by default, there is a, a, a the 
the ability to to tie into that eventing engine quite easily. Uh, there is an alerting module um, that will come with um, well, that actually ship with beta two that allows you to tie alerts with particular build events. So, for example, if a build failed, I might want to send an email to a distribution list saying, "Uh oh, you know, all hands on deck, let's yeah. get this thing working." Um, but if you needed to customize it even further. We can actually tie into uh, even things like source control events, like when someone checks something in, launch a build, so right. that we can get into that continual build cycle. Nice. Um, you know, for those who have used a product called Cruise Control before, that's what Cruise Control allows us to do: is respond to source control events and launch builds from that. And and the Cruise Control is now built in. Is that well, what you're saying? Cruise or? Control isn't actually. Um, we we but don't the fun- uh, in the current uh, beta two that's out right now. There is no way of of creating um, an, a continual build out of the box. But uh, again, it's it's not rocket surgery if someone wanted to f- uh, figure that out. And I'm sure that by the time the release happens, uh, someone's going to create a quick little add-in that will allow you for cruise control type of um, functionality, so that you know everybody can maybe have an integrated uh, desktop icon that will give you alerts of when builds are being executed and when they've failed and so forth. Microsoft and SQL Server Magazine have teamed up to provide IT professionals in your area with the facts on successfully migrating to SQL Server 2005. Plan to attend the Get Ready for SQL Server 2005 Roadshow coming to your city soon. This one information-packed day will give you a clear understanding of how to implement a best practices migration to SQL Server 2005. This is your chance to learn from the industry experts how to use SQL Server 2005's new capabilities to improve your database computing environment in three tracks, administration, development, and business intelligence. Register now for the Get Ready for SQL Server 2005 event coming to your city soon. You'll get a one-year subscription to SQL Server Magazine and a one-year membership to pass just for registering. If you're a database administrator, developer, programmer, IT manager, or director, this is the one event you can't afford to miss. Register online at itroadshows.com. Just go to itroadshows.com and click on Get Ready for SQL Server 2005 to register online today. And uh, all these other tools that you mentioned, let's let's go uh, make a laundry list of some of these. You've got unit testing tools, load testing tools, test case management tools, code analysis tools, static and dynamic profiling. You've got uh, bi- automatic build, code coverage. Am I leaving anything out? Um, you, you, you're doing pretty good. You've got the designer tools. You've got the project management integration tools. Um, I think you've covered pretty much the entire suite. More importantly, though, every single one of these are extensible. 
and we can create our own test types. Yeah. We can extend uh, team build. We can extend um, work item types and workflow mm. and, and so forth. And fundamentally, again, I'm using that term, we're, we're actually hoping that there's a whole slew of other vendors that are out there that are going to use team uh, system as a foundation to put their tools into uh, so that uh, you know, we can further gather benefit of their functionality. The uh, project portal, what's that all about? You know, that's SharePoint. Um, most, most organizations, um, have documents, um, that, and no. especially organizations that use documents to control their process. Um, you know, we've been using SharePoint as uh, a repository for project documents for a very, very long time now. And so what Team System does is every time you create a brand new team project, it will go and create an associated, um, portal for you, built on top of Windows SharePoint Server, and pre-populate that portal with um, documentation that might need to be filled out during the uh, the process of uh, software engineering. Very interestingly, though, it's going to come with some report web parts, meaning that the slew of reports that are going to be shipped, you know, for free, essentially, with the yeah. team system that represent the activities, the the quality attributes, the progress of your of your of your project will be displayed right inside of SharePoint. So essentially, what you get is kind of like a a, um, a dashboard for the health of your project. Mm. And if you think about you know having customers or management or whatever come to that one dashboard management, and get a complete definitely. picture of how your project is doing, I mean that's phenomenal. Sure. That's that's cool. That that way, you know the the project manager's manager doesn't have to be continuously pinging him. He can just go see the website and, yeah. More importantly, slowing everything down while you have to write up a report on where we're getting to and why we're late. Yeah. I'm late because I'm always writing reports. Yeah, that, That's exactly. been my biggest complaint in working with software, um, it, it, you being in the process, was just the amount of, you know, meetings and meta information seems at some times to overwhelm and eclipse the amount of time that you actually got to. And not only that, but not just the amount of time, but like it seems like there's more importance placed on, you know, for a developer, more importance placed on that stuff if you're not properly shielded from it. And if your manager is doing a good job, that's, you know, that's what they do. They just, they keep you in your office and, you know, you, you just interact with the manager and and the rest of the team and, and that's it. Right, yeah, and man. if your manager can actually spend more time doing that for you instead of doing that logistical work, you know, because project managers ultimately have to report to, you know, project sponsors on the state of the union. You know, yeah. where are we at? Are we late? Are we going to meet this thing? What are the metrics? And uh, if we can take away that burden and provide them with uh, a transparent, you know, window into our, pro- into our team, and into the productivity of our team and the quality of our software. I mean, now our project manager can be more responsive to just taking away those obstacles away from the developers and saying, you know what, I want to keep you productive and I want to help you write quality code. All right, so um, we've been very positive up to this point. I want to now get your uh, professional opinion about some of the things that uh, are missing and, you know, whether or not, uh, obviously... Obviously, things that are going to be coming in future versions, but some things that people are n- are not going to see uh, out of the box that they're going to have to wait for the next rev for. Sure. Fundamentally, again, there we go. Um, when we think about end-to-end software development, we we we're, we start thinking about things like oh, requirements. You know, we might want to actually right. 
record requirements. Um, there is going to be a process template for team system, uh, and that's defined under the MSF for CMMI process improvement that has the ability to represent requirements. However, we're not going to have a modeling tool other than Visio that will allow us to model those requirements. Um, so, uh, Visio will still have to be our primary tool for, for modeling business requirements, for modeling our use cases, for, for using UML to kind of uh, deconstruct the problem um, that we're trying to solve and okay. represent it in some discrete fashion so that we can communicate that to our developers and to our architects. That, in, that piece is still missing there. In, in reality, is there any implementation details that need to happen under the hood for, for this kind of uh, a chart? For requirements? What do you mean? I mean, you know, is, do we need anything more than Visio for this kind of thing? Well, I mean, those of us who have been spoiled with, uh, you know, using tools like uh, Enterprise Architect, was, which is a, a, a separate tool altogether that does uh, UML 2.0 modeling or uh, Borland's together, um, you know, I don't want to speak ill of Visio because it's been my friend for, for many, many years. However, when you go from those tools back to Visio, you really start finding some of the shortcomings of the tools. It's very frustrating. And there's no good way to map your models into your implementation. Um, they're just files, and, and the best that you can do is link, you know, your implementation and work items to the files themselves, but okay. not to the individual models. So that's something we're going to see in the next version, obviously. Um, you or know, one, one could hope. Uh, I don't know exactly what the next version is going to going to going to look like. I mean, we know that Team Foundation is going to be delayed now for for three months. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that's a really positive thing, by the way, um, mm -hmm. because I'd much rather them ship just a, an amazing rock solid uh, Team Foundation rather than shipping something that you know could turn customers away from this really important product. I'm with you. I'm with you. All right. So Team Team System uh, PMs, if you're listening. To Joel, you know, let us know what your what your uh, intentions are on that. Anything else? Well, I I do have some other concerns about uh, maybe it's uh, the the ability for for fault tolerance and so forth. I mean, it, it is a version one product. I have a number of customers who are um, have development shops in Europe and in the United States and in Canada, and right now, uh, you know, if we see severed links. Uh, between the different sites, um, I'm not really that um, happy about how you know how we're going to recover um, what we have in terms of options for recoverability and, and load distribution and so forth. Okay. Team System will be coming out with a, a proxy server, for, you know, that will allow you to in, uh, to have installed in each of your d um, different locations. But that's just for performance reasons, not for any type of fault tolerance. Hmm. Okay. And uh, how about? Uh how about, how does this how does this work with Microsoft Project? I mean, we uh, we asked the VSTS team uh, at TechEd, you know, that uh, about the you know the the lack of support for Project Server, and uh, they said obviously that's something that they just didn't get to in time. Anything else that we can add add to that? I mean, I guess that's pretty much the answer right there, right? That's that's pretty much the answer. I mean, um, we've done some playing around with Project uh, to be able to integrate with Project Server transitively. So it means we're, mm. we're sucking in data from Team Server and then using Project Client to publish that uh, into Project Server. Huh. Uh, you know, it, it kind of works. Uh, it might be the option that people might need in the short term. I also know secretly, and I'm not going to say names or anything, that there is a, there's a partner out there who will be uh, creating a link um, that will allow for that um, communication to happen directly with Project Server. Okay. 
Uh, anything else that, on your wish list? Well, um, one of the big things that customers will need is the ability to customize Team System. Out of the box, you get all this great stuff, but no real way to customize it. And in every single situation where I've talked and worked with customers about adopting Team System, they said, well, what if I want to add a field to this work item? Well, it's all possible, but, you know, get out your handy-dandy XML editor and some command line tools and, and go to town. Um, right now, there isn't any uh, good uh, customization tools that will facilitate really quick adoption and customization of the tool with regard to work item customization or even SharePoint structure customization for the templates. Um, that is, uh, in my in my personal opinion, something that's very, very required uh, for customers. You think that's uh, something that can easily be done by uh, by guys like you and me and Richard? You know, people out there who are using it that uh, that you, you know, you know they they're into building tools like that. I mean, something that Microsoft necessarily has to do. Well, you know, I'm I'm going to let go of a little bit of a secret. I I have a tool that does all that. Right. Hey. Now. Hey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> shameless plug, shameless plug. <laughs> I had uh, no idea, we're, really. We're trying to figure out what the best strategy is for uh, for that tool right now, whether or not that's going to remain a tool um, that I will provide to the industry or maybe something that, um, you know, we're just going to hand over to Microsoft and say, hey, aren't we great people? Here you go. Hmm. Well, cool. Is it so, so no plans on releasing that? There's no URL or anything yet? Not right now, uh, simply cooking. because we're kind of waiting till beta 3. Uh, okay. Beta 3, we're... we're we're seeing a lot of changes in terms of the underlying schema definitions of the process templates and the ex- and the work item um, templates and so forth, and so we're we're waiting for a few more um, you know an, another major release before we we seriously start um, uh, f- polishing the tool. You know, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see shortly after release people generating serious sets of templates that are alternatives to the ones that Microsoft package. You know, speaking of that, uh, we have a place for them to stick it. Um, oh, they, we oh have plug a, number uh, two. Here well, we go. <laughs> a site called VSTS Rocks um, that was Catchy. created to kind of house any type of community activity that uh, customers might want to be involved with. On on that site, there are um, community forums for people to have discussions. And we also have a place for people to upload some of their files. And we're really, really hoping that people are going to upload their own um, uh, process template definitions that, you know, you know, for example, we have um, one of my buddies out here in the UK, which is actually where I am right now, uh, has created a, a feature-driven development um, work item type. And, you know, he wants to publish that to VSTS Rock. So if you uh, want some additional resources, I mean, st- stay on that particular site. And I, I think that as the product evolves and more people start actually using it, we're going to see lots of great samples and sample code and uh, start to evolve from that particular area. Now, Joel, um, I'm... I, I didn't quite catch it. Is this your site? Is this something you started? It's not my site, no. It's uh, just a site that uh, a couple of us, uh, myself and Chris Menege from uh, Texas, he's sure. another regional director down there in his company, uh, just kind of collaborated on. And, uh, you know, Chris actually did almost all of the work to set up the site. Uh, um, and uh, But we're all kind of contributors and uh, brain children. It looks great. looks really cool. I'm just checking it out right now. Yeah, we're trying to keep it simple. Yeah. Blogs, forums, tutorials files cool well uh here we go we're at the end of another show and uh i like to spring this question on my guests i don't know if you know this but uh what's the coolest thing you've downloaded lately um battlefield 2 demo oh nice yeah nice yeah what's uh what's what's the coolest stuff the coolest thing about battlefield 2 
Well, for one, it's it, it's uh, heavy reliance on my video card. It, it makes my computer smoke. The graphics on it are unbelievable. Uh, and it's also the ability to run inside of a bit of a community so we can uh, have joint missions with your friends. And, uh, you know, you can fly helicopters and fly tanks and blow things up. It's just fantastic. Cool. <laughs> blow shit up. That's Amen, what it's brother. all about. <laughs> Well, Joel, any last-minute words of wisdom or calls to action that you have for our listeners before we sign off? Yeah, I'd like to say, you know, I'm, a, I'm an Aneta speaker, um, and, you know, one of my passions is, of course, team system and all this kind of stuff, and uh, uh, I'd love to, uh, you know, come speak at your group if, if, you need, if you need more information about team system or, or software engineering practices. I'm actually going to be in Victoria and in Vancouver uh, at the very beginning of uh, October, so, uh, Richard, look out. I'm coming over. You're going to stay with me, right? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I think I'm on Victoria uh, in Vancouver on the third. Uh, I don't think I'm teach, uh, talking about Team System on that day, uh, but I will be flying to Van- Victoria the next day, and I will be doing a session on Team System there. So you're not, you're not a vegetarian, are you? No, hell, hell no. <laughs> Bring out the red. Oh, Joel knows. Joel knows. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's right after the MVP summit. You bet. Yeah. One other question I forgot to ask you. Maybe we can stitch this in before the last one. Uh, are you or anyone you know writing any good books on Team System? Any any great books you can recommend? Yeah, there's a great book uh, called Introducing uh, Team System Beta Edition from Richard Hunthausen, um, who is another RD. Uh, has a great overview of what the product uh, can do, right from the the team architect features right on through to the project management features. Cool. And uh, anything in the works that uh, you or anyone you know might be working on, maybe? Yeah, there's a couple of us who, uh, you know, hint, hint, uh, say no more, have uh, a few book proposals in the works. Um, We're we're actually hoping to hear back this week on whether or not we're going to be spending all winter, uh, you know, churning out chapters instead of spending time with our family and stuff like that. Say no (laughs) more! Yeah. All right. Well, uh, listen, Joel, it's been great having you on the show. I'm, I'm really glad that we've got now sort of two perspectives on Team System. We have the Microsoft perspective and then the, you know, the third party in the trenches perspective. And, and I think, uh, what, what can we say? This is a great product and, and I'm glad you're around to tell us all about it. Yeah, I'm just absolutely stoked, as you could probably tell. Yes. Joel, we need to do another show because I want to argue CMM with, uh, CMMI with you. Oh, fantastic. I can go there for hours. Fabulous. There you go. I think I was, I was I thinking, you know what? I'm not even going to tip this one over because it'll take a whole show to do it. <laughs> Fabulous. Absolutely. All right. Well, on behalf of myself, Richard Campbell in Vancouver, Joel Semeniuk in the UK, but normally in Canada, this is Carl Franklin saying, have a great week and keep on rocking in the .NET world. Catch you next week. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a, a
time, but life is hard. 